Jeremiah 23. Tonight we're going to look at the first six, I should say the first eight verses of this chapter only. It's quite rich in its meaning and its understanding, and I chose not to try to cram too much into this study this evening. Uh, there are quite a few verses, as a matter of fact, 40 verses in this chapter, so uh, we can't uh, really get beyond the first eight uh, without learning quite a, quite a lot. So Jeremiah 23, let's read down through verse 6 for this evening, and then we'll begin our study. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries, or out of all countries where I have driven them, and bring them back to their folds. And they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Shall we pray? Father, we gather before you this evening thankful, thankful still and always for the privilege that you have given to us in this country to be able to read and to study your word. I thank you, Lord God, that even as we see the times changing around us and freedoms being compromised, especially when it comes to the preaching and the teaching of your word that we should take to heart that Lord serving you is more important and above all than compromising our stand with you for those who do not consider your word to be true or important we on the other hand do And we'll stand. We will stand for your truth and stand for your love and for your grace. 
We pray, Lord God, for mercy. Mercy upon our country. But Lord, while we have breath, we shall praise you and honor you and bless you. And we shall serve you by proclaiming your truth. Allow us, Lord God, this opportunity tonight through the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Not only that your word would go forth, but that you, Lord God, would anoint us and bless us that we may understand your word tonight. And this we ask, O God, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. And amen. You know, it would seem that whenever we consider darkness, that immediately our thoughts turn to things that may lend to evil, wickedness, fear, trouble, disaster, war, sorrow, difficulty, tragedy, or any number of other things along those lines. You understand what I was saying about darkness. You hear darkness and those are the things that come to mind. There is evidence to the fact that in our day and time, and even in our own country, that things are getting a lot darker than they've ever been if we consider darkness to be relating to something worse than it ever was. Along these lines, we would consider darkness then to be something that we don't want to find ourselves in. Take, for instance, what David says in Psalm 143, verse 3. And we grab hold of his heart here when he says, For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness. Notice. The enemy has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Or we take the words of Solomon to his son when he says in Proverbs 2 verses 11 through 15, Discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. To deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Now consider what is said around that phrase, the ways of evil, saying perverse things. Those who have left the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Verse 14, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked. Think about that phrase for just one moment. Those who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked. That is as contemporary and real to this very hour in our country as any verse of Scripture is today. Whose ways, verse 15, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths. I've got to insert this here, right here, right now. You can tell something's on my heart. 
But to get up in the morning to listen to the news, the national news, and to think that there is this group called the, uh, the ACLU. You all know when I say ACLU what that stands for. The American Civil Liberties Union that are willing to back a, a group of people to take out the definition of what obscenities are and indecencies in our country for the purpose of allowing people who want to go about in public nudity in our country to have the freedom and to say that that would actually be constitutional for them to be allowed to do that. Throwing all decency out the window, throwing all morality out the window. Do you understand where we are here? Okay. Now I've got to ask God to calm my heart. Because I've got about five other things that we've got to deal with that I hope and pray we will come out clearer so that we'll understand. We're talking about darkness here. Proverbs 4 verse 19 says, The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. More, more than likely because they can't see it. Because they're in the dark. And then Solomon laid in his life after having stumbled himself, would say in Ecclesiastes 5.17, all his days, speaking of that person who lives his life under the sun without God and without wanting to know God, he says, all his days he also eats in darkness and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. And I've used these particular scriptures to give you a kind of a full uh, view, you know, just kind of a broad view of all of those things that come to mind when we think of darkness in the scriptures. And in life. And what we have been seeing in our studies of the previous chapters, chapters 21 and 22, what we've been seeing in Judah and Jerusalem at the time of Jeremiah gives us indication that things couldn't get any darker for those who were about to be judged by the Lord through the Babylonian invasion. If you've been with us any amount of time in the book of Jeremiah, you realize it's just gotten darker and darker to the point to where they are now. And Babylon is knocking at their door. Last week we studied about the last four kings of Judah. The last four kings to rule in Judah were evil kings. Each and every one of them, evil kings. Zedekiah, Jehoahaz, who was called also Shalom. Uh, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, or was called Kaniah last week. God even took his part of his name out of Jeconiah or, well, Jeconiah or Jehoiakim's name to say, you know, I don't even want my name associated with you. Called him Kaniah. And they did nothing to lead the people to trust in the Lord their God. They were as dark, it was as dark a time as there ever has been in history. Especially for Israel and Judah. And they were dark times for sure, but there is something else that we need to understand about darkness when it comes to the Lord. And this is what you need to listen to. There's something else we need to understand about darkness when it comes to the Lord. Darkness is no surprise to Him. Darkness is no surprise to God. In fact, He has a pretty good grip when it comes to darkness. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when it first... He highly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. I say God has a pretty good grip on, on darkness and light. In Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, now, what I want you to do is, I want you to con- consider these passages distinctively from what I gave you before about just darkness alone. Verse, uh, Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. There's something about what God understands about darkness that we need to understand ourselves. Isaiah 42, verse 16. God says, I will bring the blind by a way they do not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. The point that I'm making here is is really found in the next passage I want to give you. And that's Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7 says this, That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. Now, hold on to that thought. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, if you have a King James Version, there's a little confusion for some people when they hear, I make peace and I create evil. God does not create evil. The understanding here is actually the creation of, the, of, of trouble. In other words, as opposed to peace, to those that, re, that he gives peace, those who give uh, uh, problems in their own existence, <laughs> they get the calamity and the troubles from God. So he says, I make peace and I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. The, the, the understanding here is, is, is twofold. When you read Isaiah 45, first of all, you have to understand that uh, there is, this is the chapter dealing with Cyrus uh, being prophesied, uh, coming uh, you know, in, into a situation. Cyrus was a Persian, by the way. Uh, the Persians had a, a belief system called Zoroastrianism in that uh, they... Um, they believed in a God of light and a God of darkness. And so what God is doing in this passage is just saying, by the way, there is no God of light, no God of darkness. I create light, I create darkness. That's the whole point of this passage. Why I'm using it tonight is, is to give you this understanding, that no matter how dark the day is, no matter how dark the days are, no matter how gloomy the outlook may be for the future of God's people, the Lord is sovereign over both light and darkness. That's the whole point. Okay, we can go home now. No, I'm just kidding. Don't get up. The whole point is this. The Lord is sovereign over both light and darkness. And because of this, He will send His light of hope through the promises that He's made. I've gone a long way around here to tell you, you know, that things have gotten dark for Judah in chapter 23. But God still loves His people. And God still gives hope. And that's what this chapter is all about. At least this first part of the chapter. 
I've said all of this to say that in the passage that we're studying this evening, the Lord reveals His plan to regather His people and transform the remnant into a nation. In fact, a remnant did return to Judah after the captivity. They rebuilt the temple. They restored their national life. But more than that, a much greater regathering of the Jews would take place. One that was a greater miracle than their deliverance from their bondage in Egypt. As a matter of fact, we've already studied this if we go back to Jeremiah 16. In Jeremiah 16, verses 14 and 15, it says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said. The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. So there is the promise of regathering. The promise of regathering Israel in the land again. Now this is also repeated in verses 7 and 8 of our text. That's why I didn't read it earlier. The Lord will call His people from the nations of the world. He will gather them in their land. He will cleanse them. And then He will send them their promised Messiah. Now, what do we fill in here as far as gaps are concerned? Well, the fact is the promised Messiah came the first time and they missed Him. So Jesus says, I'm coming again. When he comes again, they won't miss him. As a matter of fact, he'll make it very clear who he is. But of course, before all of this, the darkness of the time had to be dealt with. So let's deal with the darkness of their time. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 4. It says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Now, remember that we've been talking about the kings, the last four kings of Judah were all evil kings. They should have been leading the people like David led the people as a shepherd. They were the shepherds of Israel. The priests were under shepherds in a sense that they worked with the civil king. You know, the the king really in, in Israel was not just civil but religious as well. But nonetheless, the priests were also supposed to be leading the people. They weren't doing that either. So woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. In other words, you have not cared for them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. So God is indicting the shepherds of Israel, and in this case, the shepherds of Judah. But He is also indicting them as pastors, because in the King James Version it says, is woe to the pastors who destroy and scatter the sheep. So he's, in, he's indicting the shepherds or pastors of his people, both the civic, or a civil, I should say, and religious. They were to be leading the people of the Lord. And they're, they're supposed to be leading the people to the Lord. You see, it's one thing to be leading the people, but Israel and Judah, as Israel together, should have been led to the Lord each and every day of their lives by their king, by their priests, by their religious leaders. Everyone should have been leading them to the Lord. But not just leading them to the Lord, but watching over them. But instead of doing this, they were leading the people astray and into idolatry. 
If the kings were leading them into idolatry and the priests were leading them into idolatry, did the people have any chance whatsoever? Did they have any opportunity whatsoever to see the Lord? They, they began to follow the, the leadership. They all began to worship idols. God says, Jeremiah, go out and find somebody and tell them, you know, what's going on. And, and he didn't find one person who would, who would join him. Interesting. This was a ruthless way of treating a helpless people. What the shepherds were doing, what the pastors were doing, what the, what the priests were doing. It was a ruthless way of treating a helpless people. And I say helpless because if, if they are called shepherds of Israel, the shepherds tend sheep, and sheep by themselves are helpless. They need a shepherd. And instead of leading God's flock by love, by mercy, by grace, by truth, they drove the flock mercilessly. They drove them like cattle. That's, that's why I always love the picture of a shepherd leading his sheep, not driving them. Shepherds don't drive sheep. Anything that has the word driven in it, I, you know, when it comes to God's sheep, I'm very careful about. Because sheep are led, not driven. Cattle are driven, but not sheep. But these shepherds drove the flock of God mercilessly, and they exploited the flock at every opportunity. They made a profit off of the flock of God. And the last thing on the mind of these so-called leaders was to care for the sheep. That was the last thing on their mind. To take care of these people. So in verse 2 it says, Therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people, You have scattered my flock, driven them away, notice, You've driven them away and not attended to them, you have not cared for them like a shepherd is to care for the sheep. You have not fed them. You have not tended to their needs. So what does God say to them, to the shepherds? He says, Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings. How is He going to attend to them? With judgment. So consider what the Lord told Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. Because the Lord tells Ezekiel things concerning the very same issue of false shepherds and deceptive shepherds who would not feed the sheep the truth of God. Ezekiel 34, beginning verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flocks. The picture here is that they weren't giving the people anything, but they were taking everything from the people, and the sheep were dying of spiritual starvation, spiritual malnutrition. 
Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and, and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick. Now isn't that an interesting statement? You've not healed those who were sick. It was the responsibility of the shepherds of Israel to bring the sick before the Lord, to pray for them, to care for them, even if necessary, to treat them physically along with their prayers. But it wasn't happening. Nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. You know, some people sometimes, let's stop here for just a moment, some people sometimes you know, criticize ministry leaders in, in the church today. People get offended by one thing or another and they get up and they take off, you know. You ought to go seek out the sheep. And I've, I've got to tell you, I've thought about this for 25 years. I mean, in the ministry this long. And there's times, you know, we've gone after them and it's... And I've come to realize that in many cases, going after sheep like that, we're not really going after sheep. They don't want to listen to what you have to say. They go from place to place. Who will they let shepherd them? That's something to consider. But nobody's ever treated with force, force and cruelty here, but they still leave. But when sheep are scattered and the leaders don't go after them with what is good for them, where else can they go? Notice what God says in verse 6, My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth and no one was seeking or searching for them. Eventually they would be scattered by God because the shepherds did not do their job of teaching God's word and, and feeding them God's word. Didn't happen. And certainly the judgment and chastisement would be heavy upon them. If you read on in verse 7, it goes on to say, Therefore you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. God speaking to his shepherds. He says, As I live, says the Lord, God, surely, because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my sheep or my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. In other words, the shepherds were held accountable for God's flock. Now I can tell you this. I'll be held accountable for you. 
So be thankful. I don't sit around looking for ways to make you happy. Because I realize that the joy of the Lord is your strength, so I'm going to give you what the Lord gives me to give you. I'm not here to entertain you like I said this weekend. Let's be thankful for that. Because I take my accountability before the Lord very seriously. People want to hear it and live by what God says. Praise the Lord. The Lord would would judge them and remove them from their positions of power. That's what he's saying here in the second section of this passage in Ezekiel. They, They would no longer have the opportunities to profit at the people's expense. Ezekiel goes on to talk about the Lord interceding for His people and, and rescuing them. There, there, is, there is that sense in Jeremiah's prophecy as well of God interceding for His people and rescuing them. Let's go back to Jeremiah 23 because in verses 3 and 4 we see that of our text. Here he says, But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. Now notice that God is, is saying, I have driven them. But why is he saying that? Because they have all fallen away from him. He has had to send them into this captivity, or will send them into this captivity. Because they have been disobedient and and rebellious to God's word. But Notice what he says. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all all countries where I have driven them, and bring them back to their foals. I've driven them, I'll bring them back. And they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them. Not the same ones, others. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. So the Lord assumes the responsibility of regathering His people Israel. The Lord assumes the responsibility. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, thank the Lord that God assumes that responsibility. Who else would the Lord trust in gathering His people from every corner of the earth? I don't think He trusts any of us. He trusts Himself. Because He's faithful. We may not be faithful, but He is. And this thought runs through Scriptures. It runs through the, the prophecies. For example, Jeremiah 31, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. And not only in Jeremiah, but Micah chapter 2, verse 12. It says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. And even going back to Ezekiel 34 for just a moment, verses 11 and following. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloud, on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from their countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their foal shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. Look at that. 
I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. Those who had gotten fat and strong and fed by taking advantage of the people, God says, I'll judge them. The very spectacle, the very spectacle of bad shepherding was God's motivation to round up the scattered sheep and find good shepherds for them. This was a promise the Lord made in Isaiah. In Isaiah 32, verses 1 and 2, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind, and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. God has promised good shepherds. And I tell you what, uh, this is a great model for any and all administrators, civil, religious, political, and otherwise. What it says in verse 1 of Isaiah 32. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. A king, a leader, will reign in righteousness. And the, and, and, and the princes will rule with justice. Righteousness, justice. What a model. Sure wish we had it. In our country. There were men whom God raised from, for the immediate gathering of the remnant out of, of the Babylonian exile. Men that you can go back in scriptures to read about. Men like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and even the Maccabees who had become shepherds of God's flock. At least for a short time. Because you see in Jeremiah 3, going all the way back to Jeremiah 3 verse 15, God says, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. You can read about Zerubbabel and Ezra, of course, in the book of Ezra. You can read about Nehemiah, of course, in the book of Nehemiah. They were shepherds that God raised up in captivity to come back with the people of Israel as they regathered in Israel and in Jerusalem and shepherd them with God's word. The Maccabees, of course, was at the tail end there of... of, uh, before the intertestamental period, before that, uh, about 200 years before uh, Jesus is born in, in Bethlehem, that uh, the Maccabees, uh, you know, very uh, uh, important in the establishing of the, uh, the Feast of Hanukkah, uh, dedication of the temple, uh, they rose up uh, out of the Maccabean period, came the, uh, the ideals of, of the Pharisees who, uh, in, in a good sense, the Pharisees who truly desired to follow the law of God and to teach the law of God. So even at the end of that particular time period for Israel, uh, God had raised up shepherds. But under the administration of these leaders, the people would no longer be terrified by the threats of their enemies. The Lord would erase all fear and need among them. You know, it's interesting when you get a leader that, that stands strong for his people. The people don't have to cower any longer. 
They can rise up. But now there's a double reference here. Because the promise not only belongs to the remnant of exiles returning from captivity in Babylon, but also to the regathering of Israel in the last days of human history, which becomes clear in the next section of this passage. So now let's look at verses 5 and 6. Because it says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. He will be called Yahweh Zitkenu. Yahweh Zitkenu. Now, it's interesting that the name Zedekiah, who was one of the evil kings, had, had the name that was very similar to Zitkenu. That Zedekiah was, was, was his name. But the name of the Messiah is Yahweh or Jehovah Zitkenu. And here, of course, is one of the greatest promises ever given by God Himself. The promise is to send the righteous branch into the world. This promise was given time and again in Scripture, but especially by the prophets. The prophets gave the, pro- the promise of God. Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. The branch of the Lord. Jeremiah 30, verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. David, the king? Who is it? Well, of course, it is Messiah from the line of David. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she, sh- uh, she will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Speaking of Jerusalem, it will bear the same name, Yahweh Tzitkenu. Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24. I will establish one shepherd over them. Notice, one shepherd, and he shall feed them. My servant David. David the king was dead a certain number of years already, or one from his line that God had promised all along. Messiah was to come through the line of David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. Oh, by the way, I, I forgot to tell you, I'm giving you a lot of scripture tonight. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Folks, these prophets didn't get together and have a powwow session to find out what should we write in the Scriptures. They wrote them at different times and in different places, and guess what? They wrote the same thing. Why? Because God spoke to each of them and gave them His promise. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch 
the branch of Israel, the Messiah. Zechariah 6 verse 12, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. I suppose we could go on and on and on, and we could. So I've just given you a few verses. Just a few. But all of them, each and every one of them, pointing to the Messiah that, was to, that is to come at the final regathering of Israel. By the way, I haven't mentioned yet, but I think you all know that the regathering has already begun. The land of Israel is being populated by Jews coming from every corner of the world. And it will continue until that day. So without any doubt, these are prophecies of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are four facts about the righteous branch that draw a sharp contrast between the ideal king or the righteous king and the unrighteous shepherds. So what we're seeing here is is these contrasts. Three of them in verses 5 and 6, one of them in verses 7 and 8. But first of all, the Messiah will rule wisely and execute true righteousness and justice throughout the land. You see what a contrast that is to the last four kings, and of course any of the other kings who were wicked kings in both Israel and Judah. Jesus stands as a tremendous contrast to their rule because the Messiah will rule wisely. He will execute true justice and righteousness throughout the land. So when the Lord returns to earth to establish His kingdom, there will be no lawlessness. Listen. There will be no lawlessness. Injustice. No oppression. No violence. No immorality to plague the earth. It seems like every time we turn around, there's some sense of lawlessness, injustice, or immorality, or violence that's taking place in our own country, much less the whole whole earth. So do you see why we need to keep looking up for our redemption in Christ? Why we need to be waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? And why we need to be ready for it? Christ's rule on earth will be characterized by righteousness, justice, compassion, and benevolent service. That is what the characteristics of His righteousness will be upon the land when He rules and reigns from His throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. Psalm 45 verse 7 says, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Prophetic here. This is a prophetic statement of Messiah. Isaiah 11 verses 4 and 5. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Righteousness and faithfulness. The characteristics of Messiah's rule 
and rain. In complete contrast to the unrighteous shepherds who led the flock astray. Revelation 19 verse 11. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. In righteousness the Messiah judges and he makes war. Remember what we read about darkness and, and light that God created? I created the light and I created darkness. I make peace and I create calamity. The calamity is to judge the unrighteous who have been given every opportunity to turn to the righteousness of God and the righteousness of Christ. But men choose not to turn. And so, here we are today. One of the greatest wrestlings that we go through on a daily basis as believers in Jesus Christ are the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil each and every day. The enemy does not sleep to make us falter and to make us fail. But greater is he that is in you, Christian, than he that is in this world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. You don't have to succumb to these temptations. The very same Messiah that we're talking about who will come to rule and reign in righteousness should already be ruling and reigning where? In us. Secondly, the second fact about the righteous branch. The Messiah will save and reunite God's people and give them true peace. True peace. Unless you know Jesus Christ, you will not know true peace on this earth. Unless you know Jesus Christ, you will not know true peace on this earth. Those who come to Messiah, those who He will save of His own people, they will have peace of heart and, they, and there will be peace throughout society when Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years. His people will be eternally secure from all threats, from all enemies, from all temptations, and from all trials. Perfect peace will reign on earth. And folks, that cry went out. The cry went out by the angels when Jesus came into this earth in human form. Glory to God in the highest and peace, goodwill to all men. But all that peace and goodwill wasn't going to happen until He comes again in righteousness. But they could sing about it because that's why he came in the first place. You know, to come a second time, you, first, you had to come the first time, right? So Jesus came the first time. And why did he come the first time? He did not come the first time to judge. He came the first time to save. 
He did not come to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3.17 And we all know what Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace. For us to have peace, he had to go through that chastisement. The cross. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. What did he carry to Calvary? A cross that belonged to us. It was our cross, not his. We deserve to die, not him. But he gladly went to the cross for you and me. So that when we would say, yes, Lord, I believe that you died for my sins, that you shed your blood for the forgiveness of my sins, then I would have peace and you would have peace. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, what I was just saying, Paul says so much better. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Thirdly, the Messiah will be called the Lord our righteousness, Jehovah or Yahweh Tzitkenu. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. By living a sinless life, when he was on earth, the Lord secured perfect righteousness, you see. The ideal righteousness for us. The perfect righteousness. By his sinless life. When people place their trust in Jesus Christ, God credits the righteousness of Christ to their account. And they become acceptable to him. God counts them righteous because they stand before him in the righteousness of Christ. When you stand before God, what God sees in you is not your righteousness. Because the Bible says that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before the Lord. So when we stand before God, He doesn't look at our righteousness. No matter how many good things we've done today, it doesn't matter. Except on, you know, the good column. Because we will be judged as believers. We will be judged for the things we've done, both good and bad. But now when it comes to our salvation, there was nothing we could do. There was no righteousness of ours that would count toward our salvation. That's why God counts them righteous. Counts us righteous. Because we stand before Him in the righteousness of Christ. When we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, 
we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not our own righteousness. Paul said in in the book of Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us. So as this verse says, the very name of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lord our righteousness. He is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 says, But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us. Whoops, I had to wait for this. First Corinthians one thirty. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> there it is. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's Jesus for us, folks. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. Do you do anything for your salvation today? Of course not. If you're already saved, what you do, you do for the glory of Christ. Did we do anything whenever it was that we were saved? Did we do anything to, you know, to help Jesus along with it? No. Because what we discover when we come before the Lord is that we're all sinners. That if, even if it was one sin in our life, that sin would take us to hell without Christ. He died. Well, we're all got a few more on our account there that had to be taken care of. But Jesus' blood is able to do it all. And he did. Cleans the dirtiest sinner. Saves the wickedest of sinners. And you're looking at them. And I'm looking at them too. And then lastly, the Messiah will be the Savior. The Messiah will be the Savior who will bring about a greater exodus than the exodus from Egypt. Because the righteous king will gather, for, gather his people from all the countries of the world and lead them back to the promised land of God. And not, and not only will he lead them back to the promised land, but think about the, the, the greater regathering, the re-regathering, as it were, of all his people who have recognized that Jesus is Messiah and the gathering of everyone into the true promised land, which is the land made without hands. With a temple made without hands. Heaven. In God's presence forever. That brings us to verses 7 and 8. Therefore behold the days are coming says the Lord. That they shall no longer say. As the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel. From the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them. And they shall dwell in their own land. They shall dwell in their own land. First came the remnant in captivity, coming out of captivity, going back into the land. Little by little, they began to regather in Israel. Jesus comes, is rejected, 
by men. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, the children of God, to as many as believe in his name. The church begins. Jesus ascends into heaven. A few years later, Rome comes and destroys Jerusalem. And God's people, once again, who had rejected their Messiah, are scattered through all the corners of the earth. Comes the early to mid 20th century, and once again, the children of Israel are gathering in the land, even to the extent that a small strip of land given and partitioned over to, to this group of Zionists would in May of 1948 become the state of Israel. Same name that God always said the land would be called. From that time, through many dangers and troubles and wars and attacks, they continue to exist. But not without the prayers of God's people and not without God's hand upon them. Think of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Gathering his elect. It's happening. Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. In closing, there is an interesting and quite profound definition for the title given to the Messiah. I've mentioned it a few times. The Lord our righteousness, Yahweh Sitkenu. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the name Zedekiah means the Lord is righteousness. But Yahweh Tzitkenu is literally translated. Listen to this. It is literally translated. The Lord is the author of our righteousness. The Lord is the author of our righteousness. And even more literally, it says the Lord is the author of our prosperity. More literally... Yahweh Sitkanu or Tzitkanu means the Lord is the author of our prosperity. Now, what does that say? It says that if we are prosperous in anything, it is in the righteousness of Christ. It is in the righteousness of Christ. Oh, folks, I tell you, prosper in that, please. Prosper in the righteousness of Christ. I close with two passages of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him when you know sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see how important it was that Jesus came 
and lived a sinless life. Because then we who believe in him, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And lastly, Philippians 3 verses 8 and 9, Paul says, Yet indeed I also count all things loss. You see, he doesn't care about the prosperity of things in this, in this life. God blesses us. Praise the Lord. But listen to what he says. Indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having what? My own righteousness, which is from the law, but that righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That's the righteousness that we need to have upon our lives. The righteousness of Christ. What a difference it makes to the world if we will live righteously in this life until the day of Christ. Rather than to be as many who say they are believers and yet their lives reflect nothing of the righteousness of God and of Christ. Folks, we're still human. We make mistakes. But that's why the Lord said, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't want to be clothed in unrighteousness when Jesus comes. So that's why we need to always be before the throne of God. That's why we always need to lay our hearts down before God in our lives and quit letting the world dictate how we live. Let's let Christ dictate by his love and grace and mercy how we are to walk, how we are to live, how we are to be in this world. Let's pray.